Hey everyone, and welcome to the first full episode of Natural Science Daily. I hope you enjoyed last week's walk through an active logging operation. This week's theme is herpetology. For those of you who have never heard of herpetology, or herps for short, I am not referencing the STI, but like, please make sure you're always practicing safe sex. I'm actually talking about the study of amphibians and reptiles. But before we get into talking with Greg, it's time for our weekly Nietzsche fun fact. It may not come as much of a surprise that cartoons aren't always the most accurate depictions of the world. I'm sure most of us have seen a cartoon where a turtle just hops out of its shell and surprise, it's completely naked. However, in reality, this isn't actually a possibility. Turtles are directly connected to their shells. They don't find bigger ones as they grow, but the shell actually grows with them. Most turtle shells are covered in hard plates of keratin called scutes. Yes, this is the exact same keratin that makes up your fingernails. However, some turtles don't have scutes. Soft-shelled turtles have shells that are protected by a thick layer of skin. Now that we have turtles on the brain, let's get started and go talk to Greg. Hey everybody, so I'm here with Greg LeClaire to talk about what he's doing uh, with his work. He's a grad student at the University of Maine right now. We first met um, on a turkey research project when we were allowing turkeys, eastern wild turkeys, to control our entire lives. Um, so Greg, thanks for being on the first official podcast episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is exciting. Uh, good. So do you want to kind of talk about why you're doing grad school at all or what you're doing for grad school? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of things that kind of directed me towards grad school at this specific moment. But um, currently my research focuses on eDNA. So for those who aren't familiar with it, eDNA stands for environmental DNA, and essentially what that is, it's this new technique, it's like about a decade old from what I understand, where we can detect the DNA of organisms in the environment, be it plants or microbiological organisms, to what I study, which is turtles. So we're using eDNA to attempt to um, determine what the limits of the technique are for detecting, say, like a single turtle along the length of stream. And then in addition to that, we're using similar techniques in contexts of illegal wildlife trade. So turtles are poached quite heavily, especially the species I study, which are wood turtles. What are they so poached for? Pet trade, primarily. Oh. So food trade is like a minor part of that, but mostly pet trade. Okay. So they're popular because they're pretty beautiful turtle. They have an amazing amount of personality for a turtle, too, and they're also quite intelligent. They're oh. like... I don't know if they're the most intelligent reptile, but they're pretty high up there. So awesome. all these things make them super popular for pet trade. Mm -hmm. So what we're hoping to test is if eDNA-like techniques, and I'll explain the like part in a second, can detect whether or not somebody's been poaching wood turtles. And we're uh, the like part is the fact that we're expanding this to like a forensic sense. So let's say um, somebody has a bunch of totes or aquariums or something. There's nothing in them. There's no blood, there's no feces, no dead turtles, nothing around. Mm -hmm. But let's say for some reason wildlife law enforcement strongly suspects this person of poaching turtles. We should be able to detect DNA somewhere on the aquarium or nets or in filters because DNA can last quite a while on certain um, objects. So for example, in the Kinison lab, uh, Geneva York, who is a, a big part of our lab here, she was able to extract pike DNA from a fishing rod that caught a pike three years ago and then sat in Mike's basement. So it's potentially quite a powerful tool. Wow. So we're going to see how this might be able to work in a poaching context. So we're just going to set up these uh, replicates over time and sample these buckets and see how long after a turtle was in there for only like an hour can we actually detect if a turtle uh, was in these buckets or not. Wow, that's so crazy. Yeah. 
Before I met Greg, he went to Unity for his undergrad. Um, it's a college in Maine, for those of you who've never heard of Unity College. And how did you first get into Turtles? I know you have a lot of other Herp stuff that you have been interested in. Yeah, so my freshman year, I got super lucky. Um, starting at the same time I did was my advisor, Dr. Matt Chatfield. Okay. And he's a herpetologist. He had just come from Louisiana. And he was looking for a work-study student, and somehow I ended up probably being the only person who applied. (laughs) (laughs) I was a brand-new freshman. I was super nervous in the interview, and as far as I'm concerned, I bombed it. But he took me (laughs) on, and um, first off, our projects were about snakes and salamanders for a little while, and then some frogs. And then I believe it was my sophomore year into my junior year is really when turtle stuff started picking up. So um, he's also, he's a conservation biologist, so he's also very interested in endangered species like I am. So we both kind of had this moment where we were like, you know, there could be endangered turtles right around us and we should do a study on them. And we ended up starting um, doing some preliminary surveys. We found one turtle over the course of a year. So (laughs) it was a pretty slow time, but um, we're like, you know what, it, this is worth pursuing, So, um, which is pretty bold seeing as we only found one turtle, but um, <laughs> the following summer I picked up my, uh, what would become my senior thesis by ordering a couple transmitters, went out into the field, and I got better at like finding these turtles, so mm-hmm. um, all five of my transmitters went out that season, and now we're up to um, somewhere in the upper teens to um, upper 20s with turtles with transmitters on them. Is your graduate research turtles similar or the same as these turtles that you were working with for your senior thesis? Yeah, so it's um, the same group of turtles. Mm-hmm. Um, matter of fact, the turtle that I'm using for the field eDNA uh, portion, we had found stuck in a beaver dam. He was missing both of his back legs, and wow. he was just kind of like stuck vertically, like straight up and down. And he was not doing good. Like he was oh, like gosh. hanging out of his shell, like baking in the sun, and um, he had like some signs of like gangrene on his skin and whatnot. So he was really not doing so hot. So we brought him in and took him to a rehab center, and he recovered wonderfully. Hmm. Uh, so now he lives at Unity. Oh, and that's cool. What we're going to do is throw him into a cage in the stream for about 24 hours and just see how far downstream we can detect him. Hmm. So it'll be a really controlled type of eDNA experiment. Yeah, that's so awesome. We're not doing anything particularly with uh, the population, the rest of the population, but mm-hmm. at least he was a part of it, and we're uh, going to be doing these experiments in the area, but if we do it in a wood turtle stream, so the same streams, mm-hmm. it'd be messing up our experiments a little bit. The important question. Yeah. Does he have a name? Yes, he What's does. What's his name? Scooter. Oh, Scooter! <laughs> yeah, because he kind of scoots around. So <laughs> We've talked about like setting up some prosthetic limbs for him or something. There's so many ideas out there for turtle prosthetic limbs. Hasn't happened yet, because honestly, he gets around quite well, and wow. he's also a pig. Like, the, the thing eats like crazy. Um, but yeah, so his name is Scooter. That's awesome. Yeah. Is it common for universities and colleges to work together on research projects like this? Yeah, it, I think this might be the first one where you mean in Unity College have explicitly worked together. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of Unity College students have gone on to be UMaine grad students and whatnot, but as far as I know, this is the first time Unity and UMaine have collaborated. But that's so important for increasing the quality of research or access to resources. Like UMaine doesn't have a captive wood turtle, but UMaine has the lab to do the work. Right. Whereas Unity doesn't have the lab, but they have the turtle. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, a, it's an important relationship, yeah. I think. That's awesome. Mm. 
did you always know you wanted to get into natural sciences and wildlife stuff? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say probably since the age of three or four. Wow. Yeah. Um, I grew up on wildlife documentaries. I don't know. Did you ever watch um, Wild America? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I yeah. did. So Marty Stauffer, I was a big fan of as a kid. And that's changed in the light of some things that have come out in the past yeah. like, decades. <laughs> but yeah, so I grew up on Wild America, and there was also the movie Wild America, which is still one of my favorite movies, but it's terrible. Like, <laughs> there's a moose in that movie that's actually a horse that's wearing antlers. Oh, my and God. And then the alligators have grizzly bear sound effects, and it's, it's I terrible. I need to find this movie. I haven't seen that. I think, it, and it's ridiculous to rent it. Like, the price is so high for some <laughs> reason. But it came out in, like, 92 or something. Um, highly recommend watching it, but... So it was a mixture of that, and then I think my grandmother bought me an encyclopedia for wildlife when I, when I was in first grade, and I read that thing page to page, and then I did that like every year with a new encyclopedia until I was probably about 10. And I grew up on about 100 acres of woods too, so I had that as a backyard, and just all these things like culminated into me wanting to work with nature. Mm -hmm. So high school, I really started trying to develop that, and then I found out about Unity, applied there, and mm -hmm. was able to really grow into what I wanted to become. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, was Unity your first choice or were there other schools you had looked at as well? Or? Yeah, Unity was the only school I actually applied to. Oh, that's I, funny. I did early action, got accepted, and um, I was like, yep, that's perfect. I don't want to go anywhere else. What was your favorite part about going to Unity? Oh, man. Um, probably just the whole experiential aspect of it or mm -hmm. how everybody there is focused on environmental science in some way or mm -hmm. form. So you could talk to somebody else in adventure, which is a major, there's two adventure majors, and they're primary, uh, primarily like psychology and therapy based majors, yeah. but they still care about the environment. Like they still have this knowledge of climate change or environmental issues. So to have this like interdisciplinary college where everybody's studying something different, but we're all about the environment, right. that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, you don't always get that here. We have, like, the little nutting bubble, and, like, we yeah. hang out with people in, like, the biology department sometimes, but there's this entire, multiple other colleges within the university that are, like, I don't really <laughs> care about nature. It makes me feel really cool, though, being a teaching assistant when I can get somebody who isn't as familiar with the na natural sciences and tell them, like, a weird nature fact that <laughs> i kind of forgotten was a really neat thing to people outside the field. And they're like, what? That's really cool. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. Thank you for yeah, <laughs> recognizing that. That's part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast is just because, like, so many people don't realize how awesome it is or mm -hmm. just, like, that people could be searching for turtles. Um, yeah in the middle of Maine and you never have any idea about it. And you could be getting paid to do it right. too, nonetheless. <laughs> um, so speaking of searching for turtles, how do you find one of these turtles? Oh man, so I, I have to give the disclaimer. So when I'm doing my turtle work, I'm not allowed to talk about where to mm -hmm. look, but I can tell you that how we do it is just by foot. We walk along these streams and we look in these pieces of habitat that we strongly would suspect these wood turtles are being in and we're okay. we do this in the fall and the spring when they're most likely to just be chilling in the streams because in the summer they head into the uplands and they can go about what is it, about a thousand feet in either direction from the stream mm -hmm. and even though it's a medium-sized turtle like the size of a small dinner plate and it's bright orange these things disappear like crazy so we have to concentrate our searches in uh, the spring and fall and we just walk until you know we find one and grab it process it mm -hmm. uh, we are experimenting with using a turtle detection dog which oh, cool. started last year so this 
coming season will be the first time that we really put her to the test, which it's been a really cool thing to watch this dog get trained on turtle scent. Like we have to like scrub turtles to get these claws that <laughs> smell like turtle and the uh, dog starts learning them. And um, over time, just seeing how much better this dog, her name is Delta, by the way, um, would just pick up on the trail of a turtle and kind of zigzag through a meadow and then like land us right on a turtle. Wow. So every time it's been a turtle that we've seen before that i believe all of them have had transmitters too but it's it's exciting nonetheless right yeah um the transmitters you use so there's all kinds of different transmitters for people who don't really um know about tracking animals there's you can attach them in various different ways and there's different sizes what kind of transmitter and attachment method do you use if you can talk about it yeah that's a great question so um, our transmitters are about the size of like a silver dollar or okay. yeah they're not very big and they have this long antenna that kind of hangs off the uh, end of them and we just glue it on to the shell of the turtle with um, an epoxy putty. So the mm -hmm. same thing that you'd use to fix a plumbing issue at home is what we use to stick it on a turtle. Doesn't always stay on, so like some people will even screw it to a shell. We try to be as minimally invasive as possible, mm -hmm. so we stick with the epoxy putty. And we used to glue the antenna around the shell too, but we decided that was kind of a bad idea. So mm -hmm. that's all it is, just epoxy putty, little tiny transmitter. Huh. Yeah. So when you first decided you wanted to go into grad school what kind of made you like push to try to pursue higher education yeah so I mentioned earlier it was kind of a culmination of a bunch of things I've known for a long time that I wanted to do grad school mm -hmm. and it's been a, a real challenge to like get from doing my undergrad to grad school so there was not a whole lot of education about how to apply or like even like what grad school is all about like I didn't realize that grad school is like partially a job and partially an education yeah. like a lot of people at least a lot of my friends kind of assumed it was just an education and that you're also paying for it mm -hmm. luckily in the natural sciences we usually get paid to go to grad school right. with a tuition waiver I know not everybody does but that's usually the case um, so I didn't know that for a long time but um, after a while, and it was shortly after I graduated, and actually during a turkey work, um, mm -hmm. I was really gearing up to prepare to go to grad school because um, I had a daughter on the way, and mm -hmm. she's now born. She's uh, going on eight months old. And she's adorable, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so I usually don't find babies cute, <laughs> and I don't think it's just because she's my baby. She's really cute. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> Um, so I needed some stability to come in right. and everything was lining up perfectly for grad school. So, um, which sounds kind of crazy because most people think I have a, co uh, like a kid coming, like I shouldn't be going into grad school right. right now. But for me, if I were able to get into UMaine, which is where I am, um, it would just be perfect. So Unity is in Maine. UMaine is obviously in UMaine. My advisor who was pushing me to apply to grad school is in Maine. All of my research would have been in Maine, and all of my past research has been in Maine. Mm -hmm. I live in Waterville, which it's a little over an hour of a drive, so it's a long commute, but yeah. everything kind of lined up perfectly for me to sit down for about two years, which, I mean, having a stable job for two years is... It's huge. Yeah, that is huge, especially in our field where you're usually working summer and then a new job in fall mm -hmm. and a new job in winter. So having a stable job for two years was very attractive as well as the fact that I would finally just get this upper level degree out of the way and hopefully qualify for these permanent positions that mm -hmm. I've been trying to get for the past couple of years. Right. How long were you out of undergrad before you got into grad school? 
Um, I believe, let's see, I graduated in 2018, and then I came in here in the fall of 2019, so I guess it was um, just a year and a half. Wow, that's yeah. impressive, because I know a lot of other people that they end up taking like five or six years off, and then they decide to pursue grad school, so that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I still kind of wish that I had more time to pursue more field jobs. Like, I see these postings for like alligator snapping turtle technician right. down in the bayous of you know the deep south which is like one of my greatest interests like i, I love mississippi i mm -hmm. went there a couple of years ago and i applied to another job down there that i almost got and um i don't know just like all these like really exciting sounding technician jobs which i'm hoping this will be worth it you know i'll probably find something else of course but right. um you know i've been lucky like i worked on the turkey project with you and um Let's see, what else have I done? I worked as a museum educator and naturalist, which I gave these programs about wetlands and stuff during the summer, and that was a bunch of fun. So I've had some good experiences for mm -hmm. sure. What was your job as a museum naturalist like? So wildly different than the science jobs. Mm -hmm. So I minored in education. I really enjoy doing you know educational stuff. So um, when I applied to this museum, I was just really excited about the idea of like going to schools, and that's what it was, is I went to schools and gave programs about um, birds, reptiles and amphibians, forests, wetlands, oceans, that was like the typical like five that I'd give. Yeah. Um, so I'd like kind of go on a circuit to local schools, but in the summer, we'd have summer camps at the museum, and uh, by the way, this is a Victorian era museum that has not changed much. Wow. It's um, the museum itself is a museum. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know really how to explain it better than that, but like all the taxidermy is like original, like early 1900s. Ooh, those are fun. Yeah, they're, they're, there's a whole like um, why the long face game based on like these poorly taxidermied animals. But um, so it was really cool. Like I would teach kids how to catch frogs and then show them how to sex and ID frogs. And sometimes we'd catch like all sorts of cool like wetland pond invertebrates. So. It was a lot of fun, and if I'm able to include education in my career, it's definitely something I'd like to continue doing. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Would you, do you have any recommendations or advice for people who have an idea for a project they want to do in grad school, but mm -hmm. don't know how to take it further? Because a lot of grad school, like, the job, the position gets posted and you apply for it, but mm -hmm. from what I'm understanding, you already had this idea ready to go and you confronted people about it to be like, this is going to be good. Yeah, so there are benefits and drawbacks to either approach. So as you mentioned, my approach was having this idea and kind of forcing it onto the lab <laughs> here. Um, so I just kind of stayed persistent, like I have this idea, I have potential funding, and that's a huge part too, is if you have an idea, you have to have the funding for it. Mm -hmm. So Luckily, I was able to have some funding available, mostly because my advisor down at uh, Unity, he had some ready to go. Um, so having connections like that where they can have something for you is definitely a huge help. But the downside with that is, is usually you don't have funding for like a tuition waiver, unless you have <laughs> like an amazing project you probably won't have it. So you're either going to have to do a TA ship or a research assistantship. Neither of them are terrible. And the only like benefit of a research assistantship is you're going to have at least from what I understand more time mm -hmm. so since i came in with less funding i'm kind of limited to just the ta ships which i mean heck i enjoy teaching so it's fine mm -hmm. but um if you are able to apply for an assistantship and get in through that you're probably going to be a little bit more financially supported okay What's it like to TA some of the classes here at UMaine? What do you TA? So I, last fall I taught vertebrate biology labs, and this fall I'm teaching bio 200 labs, so it's just biology of organisms. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it's been a lot of fun. Like, it's weird because this is the first time I've taught college-age students. Right. So uh, I'm used to, like, first and second graders. <laughs> However, the parallels between the two are quite similar. The only difference is I'm not telling everybody to be quiet every 10 seconds. Right. But um, vertebrate biology was a lot of fun. That's stuff that I'm at least somewhat familiar with. And Bio 200, it's much different. So Vert Bio was very, like, hands-on with me instructing a lot of the material, whereas Bio 200... The students are self-led, and it's about um, them coming up with their own experiments. I basically just make sure their experiments are going to be valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's fun, too. Like, we just did an experiment yesterday with yeast, and they were, like, blowing up balloons with, like, the um, CO2 release from yeast. So both are fun in their own ways. When I took Bio 200 here, um, we had a project where we had to grow mold on bread. Oh, yeah. And, like, you'd think that's so easy. You just leave bread out for too long, and it gets moldy. And I don't know what we did, but it wouldn't <laughs> grow mold. And I was just like, I don't know if I should be eating this bread anymore. It was just like plain, like, white Wonder Bread. And, like, I do not know what was in that stuff to make it not mold. Did you hear that we can't do the mold anymore? Why? Because so many students are allergic to mold that, like, half the classes would be missing for, like, the two-week period that we'd be doing this experiment. So now it's just (laughs) yeast. (laughs) It's not funny, but it's definitely very funny. I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) Uh, It was, I think it was 200. So when I was teeing the wildlife, 150 class um in nutting there's part of the bio 200 you have to get lichen oh um, yeah and the kids would always forget and it'd be like the day before and we'd be like in a field trip for wildlife and they'd be like what's lichen we need to find lichen can oh, we go scrape Lord. those trees <laughs> and it's like yeah go ahead guys scrape the trees just like you know don't hurt them too much oh my gosh i had a ton of students bring in moss instead of lichen and like mm. <laughs> <laughs> close but no <laughs> definitely not yeah so, aside from grad school, I know you do a citizen science project, which um, I didn't know if you could talk about that because it's pretty huge, and it looks like it's growing. It, it is growing. I wouldn't say it's huge yet. It's huge as far as the workload on my plate is, but <laughs> I spend basically December to about now, like, just flat out every day I get home, I'm working on this thing, but... Um, so it's called the big night and that's a reference to amphibians when they migrate they have this huge like spring migration where simultaneously these uh, populations of salamanders and frogs are moving to vernal pools and wetlands to breed and sadly when you have such a huge migration happening this happens at night by the way in rainy weather Mm -hmm. they're crossing a lot of roads and you know probably how hard it is to see right. a frog, especially spring peeper, the size of a little pebble or a spotted salamander, like amongst all this wet, like rubble at night. Mm-hmm. These things are getting hit like crazy. And there's not really been a huge effort to quantify the impact that these guys are taking. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's been a few studies, especially out in Massachusetts, and it seems like at least where uh, traffic density is high, there's a pretty steep drop off of amphibian populations. So um, I'm not really recruiting, but um, I guess you could say recruiting volunteers all around the state of Maine to go out and adopt these road segments that are expected to be high density movements for amphibians Mm -hmm. and survey them and also intervene and like help them across the road. Of course, you know, they have to look out for their own safety too. I don't want anyone getting hit to (laughs) save an amphibian, but um, it's a cool project. I mean, it's something I've been doing since high school, and I've just been really looking forward to getting a bunch more people involved. So we have mm-hmm. almost 300 sites throughout the state of Maine. Wow. And uh, not nearly enough people to fill them. So we, I'm assuming we'll have close to 50 roads mm-hmm. adopted this year. Okay. Um, last year it was more like 20. Mm-hmm. And so it grows every year for sure, but 
Um, the more people I can get involved, the better. And it's a super quick way to get involved. You just do, you go through the training manual, which takes you like 20 minutes to read. Mm -hmm. And then there's a short quiz that you take online. I think it's also 20 questions. If you get an 80 or, or above, you become Big Night certified. <laughs> you sign a liability waiver to say you'll look out for your safety. And right. then you adopt a segment and you can get out in the field and have a great time. Take your friends and family. Like, I love getting people out there that have never yeah. seen a spotted salamander before. It's great exposure. It's so easy to get wildlife in your hands and see this huge process. Which, yeah. I mean, when is the next time you're going to see a mass animal migration? Right. Like, and people don't think of, like, salamanders like having this mass migration, but it's like the Serengeti, man. Yeah. Like there are thousands of these things moving. And I remember in high school when I was doing what, what, like one of these, you know, big night surveys myself, I stopped next to this marsh and there was nothing going on. And then I turn around to head back to my car and suddenly there was like 24 crossing simultaneously. And like, it's just these waves that happen. So you can hit it just right and get, um, I got close to 200 amphibians in a night in wow. Unity, or maybe it's 280. It was either 180 or 280 in Unity. So if you hit it right, it can be a busy night. Mm -hmm. And of course that wildlife exposure you talked about, you can get kids involved, you can get even your grandparents involved. Like right. it's so easily accessible for everybody. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I'm not, sh I'm not sure if we really touched on it. So these salamanders are going to vernal pools to breed mm -hmm. um, and a vernal pool is a wetland that's not permanent it's usually created from snowmelt mm -hmm. right yep. and there are a set number like a certain group of species that classify as a vernal pool which would let's see if i get this right if i don't lindsay will have my head <laughs> so it's uh spotted salamanders yep. blue spotted salamanders yes. wood frogs yes and fairy shrimp? Yes. Awesome. Correct. Yes. Do you know which ones are classified as a significant vernal pool? Fairy shrimp? Yep. Yes. Yep. So the immediate detection of fairy shrimp would give it the classification of significant vernal pool. I want to say blue spotteds too. Okay. But blue spotteds are so weird that I can't remember mm -hmm. how it works because they clone themselves and yeah, they're all, all the weird things. Yeah, they're an absolutely insane species. Yeah, I, I still don't have a good grasp on them. And then I think for spotted salamanders and wood frogs, it's something like 15 egg masses in a pool mm -hmm. would be classified as significant. Yes, yeah. uh, we talked about that in a wetland class, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, so if you guys are interested, like vernal pools, it's just we get really heavily educated on it at UMaine. And it's just <laughs> if you don't enjoy just going and looking for egg masses on a nice spring day, you're really missing out it's a nice experience yeah and then if you hit it in the evening you get the beautiful cacophony of peepers and mm -hmm. quacking wood frogs and if you're farther south it's like 20 other calling frog species right? so. it would be like the perfect spring date night would be like a nice cold drink and <laughs> like a diet coke or something and then it's rainy you go for a walk you find a bunch of herps and you just you know help them across the road and mm -hmm. you bond over it and then there's just this beautiful symphony and i think that that's the way to spend your college evenings, kids. I would be wooed. <laughs> I remember when I first started doing big night stuff, the first like official big night thing was my senior year of college. Mm -hmm. And when they were publishing articles about this in newspapers, they're like, a big night sounds like a college party thing, but it's just a bunch of dorks in the field handling <laughs> salamanders. And I'm like, thanks, guys. <laughs> I am, in fact, a dork. It's fine. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah. So one question I want to make a point to ask everyone that I'm interviewing, is there any specific thing or topic that you feel like natural science struggles with? Ooh, um, yeah, certainly. So communication, which I know is a huge part of your podcast here, so mm -hmm. kudos on the podcast. Thanks. Um, communication is definitely a big issue, which I've noticed people are doing a fantastic job with recently. 
um, for example, science communication on social media, which mm -hmm. you have your own Instagram account for mm -hmm. SciComm now, which is great. Yeah. Um, but a lot of other people have done a great job of like taking to Twitter and Instagram recently. So things have been improving, but then there's also a lot of things like inequality, uh, either about like uh, race or sex or even economic inequality. Like, you know how hard it is to try to get a field job and yeah. live. Like so many field jobs ask you not only to work for free, mm -hmm. but also pay for your housing, use your own vehicle. Like these are ridiculous. It's so like, hard. I can't believe that our field can ask that and not be shamed for it. Mm -hmm. Like these are college students. Like sure, some of them probably have their parents who can help them, but mm -hmm. not everybody. And, and a lot of those tech jobs, it's kind of the bitch work. Like, yeah, yeah. You're doing hard stuff. And some of them might be like, yeah, for example, I'm not referencing anything specific here, but like they might be like, yeah, you'll be working with alligators hands-on, but then they might just stick you with data entry or mm -hmm. something. So you just really don't know what you're going to get. And then you can get really crappy supervisors on top of mm -hmm. it. And these field jobs just become miserable and... Um, I know people get turned away from the field because it's just so hard to live in. Yeah. And that's another part earlier I was talking about, you know, am I going to miss field, uh, these, you know, little field tech jobs? But that's one thing I'm not going to miss at all yeah. is just having to take jobs for too little pay or no pay at all. Mm -hmm. What is, speaking of just kind of like how these jobs are hard, how has having a kid now imp impacted you being a wildlifer? Has it been hard, an adjustment? It's been challenging at least so far as like suddenly trying to become a father mm -hmm. um, that's something I didn't expect to do for a long time which um, I am super happy with my daughter she's right. an amazing kid and like honestly I couldn't ask for a better baby mm -hmm. um, and I would say that like temporarily there are some limits in place like I can't take her out into like negative 20 degree weather or anything, but mm -hmm. if it's nice out, I take her out birding with me, which she That's doesn't awesome. really get like what we're doing. But like mm -hmm. I had a chickadee probably from me to you, which for people listening might be like three or so feet away. Mm -hmm. um, and she like stays, she straps right here on my chest and she mm -hmm. was just like watching this chickadee bounce around in the bushes and she was like kicking and making noises. <laughs> so she was having fun. And then we saw beavers the other day too in Waterville. So um I fully intend on incorporating her into my work in the future. That's great. Like when I go big nighting, I'm going to take her with me when she's old enough to understand how to be safe in traffic. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to make it work. You know, I, I'm not too afraid about limitations in the future. That's great. So I think that's most of my questions. Is do you want to plug any of your stuff or? Um... I mean. Uh... <sighs> I feel guilty plugging this in, but for those that are interested, I also have my YouTube channel. Yeah, no, go for it. So I, the reason I feel guilty is because I'm going on a year since I published anything on it, <laughs> just because I haven't had time. But once I'm done with grad school, you better believe I'm going to publish more stuff. But um, for those who want to have some visual, like what's essentially the visual equivalent of your podcast, mm -hmm. um, check out Gregment's bio on YouTube. So that's Greg's segment combined. So a Gregment. Just Google that. Um, I've got stuff about moose. I am sitting on things from our turkey work that I want to finally put out there. That's awesome. um, I've got a few other things. So feel free to subscribe. I apologize for how long it's probably going to be until <laughs> I publish anything else. But in the meantime, I think this podcast is a good filler. Thank you. Yeah. Um, for those of you who um, are following the Instagram, I'll put the link to uh, Greg's YouTube um, in the bio for a little while. So, Greg, thank you so much for being on the first full episode of Natural yeah. Science Daily. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. Good. Alrighty. So I want to wrap up this episode with a news article to help explain and show how truly relevant Greg's research is to today's world. 
This past October, the October of 2019, a huge turtle smuggling operation was busted in Florida. Two men had captured and sold nearly 4,000 turtles over a range of species in only six months, which is a pretty short period of time for so many animals. Officials even found parts of a Kemp's Ridley sea turtle, and for those of you who don't know, those turtles are very endangered. Because of the vast amount of turtles that these two people stole from the wild, officials say that it will take years for the ecosystem to truly recover from the damage that has been done. Fortunately, after the bust, 600 turtles were able to be returned to the wild, and the rest were brought to licensed facilities because they weren't all native to Florida. I'll put a link to the news article in the description of the podcast. Hopefully, in the future, because of the work that people like Greg are doing, these kinds of scenarios won't happen as often. People will be able to find that illegal poaching operations are happening and be able to shut them down much quicker so that more turtles are able to live their lives in their natural habitats. That's all for now. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and continue making natural science part of your daily conversation. Have a great week, guys.